So, second week back from um, Senegal, and uh, I told, told you guys last week you were the old uh, holy t-shirt that felt like, you know, coming, coming home, you're the ratty t-shirt that wishes, everybody wishes you'd throw away, but it's so comfortable you can't get rid of it, and the same is true today. I just love being the pastor here uh, and what God's doing. The uh, other side of that, I just want you to, to, to notice what has happened. So, Matt's not leading this morning. The reason is, is you probably have heard that uh, he's not leading worship this morning because you've probably heard that they had their baby. So Nora was born, and, and as things began to kind of unfold, he realized he wasn't going to be here this morning, yesterday, and so he made the call. And, and the reason I want to bring that up is not to say Matt should be a better planner or something like that. You can, you can tell him that if you want to, but no, I'm just kidding. So totally play it. The, the reality is, is there's significant things that have happened over the last month that just demonstrates the Lord is at work uh, in among his people here. The reality is, so for three weeks I was gone, and there were people in the pulpit preaching, and the feedback I got was, was uh, it's so nice to know if something happens, the work continues. But the second most pivotal, you know, the most central figure on Sunday morning uh, at least personally, is the, the person that leads the band in worship. And this morning, the band came together, and they led you in worship. And, and what that tells us is that the most important person in this church is not me or a person that stands behind this microphone, but is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so I praise him for the work that he's doing in and among the people of this church. I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve in this way, but, but I am blessed just to know what he's doing with us and through us. And so I just wanted to bring that out. It is the second week back, and I want you to know, just for those of you that have been around, I did take my last malaria pill last night, so I shouldn't get malaria. No more stories of, well, I'll probably tell that story until um, Jesus comes and gets me, but, but no malaria this time, probably. So uh, just, just a piece of information I know you're all wondering about. But we are Luke, Luke chapter 11 today. We are going to be focusing on prayer again. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Uh, it's on page 869 of the, the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you or the Version live event if you like following along on a smart device or an electronic Bible. That, that uh, Version live event is out there. And you're welcome to follow along with those notes. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, he says... It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And that's where his prayer ends. Now, I want to call this out just real quickly because I just read and prayed through Matthew chapter 6 where the Lord's prayer is offered also. And and I want you to see that there is a distinction. This is a shorter version. Now, what we can draw from that is Jesus is not teaching us a mantra to recite. It's not wrong to recite this. It's not wrong to pray it. But it's not necessary to recite this exactly the same way every time. If it was necessary, then you can be certain that when God recorded or when God wrote through men, that he would have had it say it exactly the same in both places. He would have ensured that we were were given the exact same words in both places so that we could recite the same words every 
time. This is not a mantra. It's a model. And from it, we learn principles for prayer. Not, not, not a prayer for dummies, step one, step two, step three. It's a, it's a model. And that's what we looked at last week. We'll go on in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I, I, it's pretty impudent if you stop and think about it to go to a friend's house at midnight and offer, ask for some loaves of bread. Like that's already kind of pushing the boundary, right? Wake up. I need bread. Are you going to die? Because Is your friend going to die? Is, is, is he going to be that upset with you if he doesn't get bread in the middle of the night? Is he not going to understand that in the morning he'll get bread? So it's already pushing the limits that you go to your friend at night and then you're waking him up and, and you won't let him alone. He's not going to rise because he's your friend, Jesus says. In fact, he's probably frustrated with you if you do that. He's not going to rise because he's your friend, but because you won't stop beating on his door. He will rise and give, give whatever he needs, and I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, I'm sure that there's practical jokers in the room. Like your kid asks for something, and you're like, oh, I, got, I got this. But you're not going to give something that's going to destroy them. It's going to be destructive to them. It's going to be harmful to them. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus' response to the question, uh, how do we pray, teach us to pray, primarily gives us the how-tos. That's what we studied last week, how to pray. And as I mentioned, it's not a mantra, it's a model. And from it, we can draw principles. So we pray vertically. We direct our prayer to the God of heaven, to our Father. We pray horizontally. This is not just a prayer for us to meet selfish needs. In fact, you look at all the personal pronouns. And, and even the parable of the man pursuing uh, his friend in need was to meet the needs of another friend. These, these pronouns are not personal, they're plural. Forgive us, for, 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 provide for us, give us, forgive us, and then lead us. These are plural ideas. The idea is we're not just praying for ourselves, my, me, my four, no more. We're praying for, for all the saints, as Paul would say it. And we're approaching the throne of God on behalf of friends who are in need, as the parable demonstrates. We pray dependently because God is always the one in the position to provide. He is always the giver. And we are always the ones who are needy. We are always the receiver. Those roles never switch. There's not a point in Scripture in which we stand in a place to do anything for God because he is in need of us to act. There's never a place where we are the giver and he is the receiver. He is, he's 
He's got all he needs. Everything we offer him, everything that we could bring to him, is not because we are supplying him some place that he has need, but it's out of gratitude. We pray persistently. We keep knocking. We don't stop knocking. We don't stop asking. Anything worth beginning a prayer for, anything worth praying once for, is worth praying until he says yes or he says no. If we will not pray persistently, if we won't continue pursuing a prayer request, then it must be that we just don't really want it. It's probably not really that important to us. Pursue in persistence. We pray persistently. We need to be careful. God's not the grumpy old man that doesn't want to get out of bed. That's not not the intention of that parable. He is the good father who answers his children. So the reality is we pray expectantly. We pray expecting him to do something. Pray expecting him to provide for us in ways that are good and beneficial to us. That's the how-tos. That's what we looked at last week. But, but Jesus doesn't just give us how-tos. He helps us see the why. He helps us understand the motive behind prayer. Like, why pray? You've probably asked this question before, or at least heard it asked. Maybe you've asked it yourself. Why pray? I mean, if God's sovereign, if he knows all things, if he knows what I need before I even know I need it, if he's, if he's all places, all, all, knows all things, is all places at all times, then, then he already knows what I need. I can just kind of... I kind of just coast through life, and he, you know, he's a father, so he's just going to take care of me. So why pray? Well, that's what we're going to answer today. Why pray? I'm going to give you four reasons, I think, that are demonstrated in the text through Jesus' through Jesus's teaching. First, we pray because Jesus prayed and taught us to pray. So Jesus is praying, right? This is, this, is, this is who Jesus was. If anyone understands the sovereign nature of God, if anyone understands the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God of the, of the universe, it's Jesus, the God who put on flesh to dwell among us. The man who is God understands the sovereignty of his Father. If anyone understands it, Jesus understands it. But yet the sovereignty of God didn't dissuade him from praying. Instead, it seems that it drove him to pray even more intently and more persistently. In fact, I brought this out last week. I didn't show you in specific, but I brought out last week that Luke, the Gospel of Luke in particular, gives us the picture of how, how much prayer influenced and affected and, and, and was woven into the ministry of Jesus Christ. So let me just walk through that. All the way back in, in Jesus' baptism, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized... And was praying. The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This significant moment, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and he doesn't just get baptized and then things happen. He gets baptized and he is praying. And when he does, in response, the heavens open, the Spirit comes down and rests on him. And God from heaven speaks in response to the prayers 
of his son. You are my son. Don't, don't miss the significance of the prayer in the, at, the, at the moment of Jesus' baptism. In Luke chapter 5, I called this out last week, Luke chapter 5, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places, lonely, empty places. He would go so that he could pray. And he prayed all night before he chose his 12 apostles, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That means he didn't go to sleep. Like what he was praying about was so important to him, it was so heavy on his heart, he saw it as so necessary that he continued to knock on the door of heaven, answer my prayer, show me the way, give me what I'm asking for. I need you to act. He prayed all night long. And if you continue in the context, you step back into the context, you continue in the context, you find out that when the next morning when he came down, the very first thing he did was choose 12 apostles. What do you think he was praying about the night before? Probably what he was about to do as soon as he came down from the mountain. If Jesus is praying, shouldn't we be praying? Before he feeds the 5,000 and just before, uh, just after he feeds the 5,000 and just before Peter confesses that he is the Christ, it says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? So Jesus is with his disciples like the crowd said they've, they've fed the, the multitude, they've, they've drawn, withdrawn from the multitude. Now, they're, now, now Jesus is praying alone. It's not a prayer meeting. It's not like he's leading a prayer meeting. He's with his disciples, but he's praying and they're sitting there. He stops praying and he engages and he says, so what are the people, who do the people say I am? And there's this discourse through the, uh, through the chapter Luke 9 uh, where, where we see him uh, being seen in the world as someone who is greater than just your average dude. I mean, they saw him as a prophet. They thought he might be fulfilling some major prophecy that they'd been waiting to see fulfilled, but they didn't quite grasp it. Then Jesus then turns around and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the confession that he is the Christ. Now, you don't see this in Luke chapter 9, but in Matthew's version of that story, he adds a detail that I think is important for us. When Peter confesses, you're the Christ, the Son of God, you're the one we've been waiting on, Jesus responds to him and says, you didn't, Peter, that's, that's, that's amazing, that's the, the rock on which I'll build my church, but you didn't gain that knowledge because of earthly perspectives. You were given that knowledge from above. And in Luke, we see that Jesus had just finished praying when he asked that question. What do you think Jesus was praying about? What do you think was inhabiting the prayers and the requests of our Savior at that point? Would it, would it be surprising when we, when we see the harmony of these Gospels being woven together, would it be surprising to sit down in eternity and say, Jesus, what were you praying about just before you asked them, who do you say that I am? Would you be surprised to hear him say that God would give them the knowledge they need to follow me? I wouldn't, because he tells us that we receive that knowledge from above. 
Jesus was praying at the time of his transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 29. It was about eight days after these sayings. About eight days after Peter says that you're the Christ. And then Jesus uh, foretells his death. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross. And if you're going to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me daily. He, he said that to them. About eight days later, after eight days, these sayings, he, he took with him Peter and John and James. And they went up on the mountain to pray. When we, when we talk about the transfiguration, we focus on God being, be, being revealed in Jesus Christ. We talk about the glory of the light shining through. We don't talk about why they went up on the mountain to begin with. Why did he take them up on the mountain? To pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The glory of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. What might have he been praying? Is it possible? I, I don't want to push too hard in the text. I don't, want to, I don't want to make too many assumptions. Please don't misunderstand. But, but is it possible? Is it too far a stretch to think that as they prayed and as he prayed that his glory would be revealed in the world? That God revealed his glory through his son. I don't know, but I can, I can assure you, I'll be asking when we get there. And it won't be surprising to me at all to find out that Jesus was asking his father to show the glory. Jesus prayed at the return of the 72. He had sent them out, these 72 missionaries, if you will, to go before him as he was heading towards Jerusalem. And it says in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 22, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed to them, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I don't even have to work hard to draw the parallels between this prayer that he just offered and the prayer that he then instructed his people to pray. We're longing for his mission to be done. We're longing for his will to be extended in the earth. We're longing for his glory to be revealed. But here we are at the beginning of chapter 11, and here it is again. Now Jesus was praying. The life and ministry of Jesus was dependent not simply on the sovereignty of God and him walking around. Oh, God's sovereign. He's got it. I can just head on into this and not worry about it. His life and his ministry were dependent upon prayers to the sovereign God. God's sovereignty didn't dissuade him. It drove him to prayer. It filled his prayers. So he prayed. I prayed, if we are going to be a people who follow Jesus, then we are going to be a people who pray. We cannot follow Jesus if we don't do the things he did. We cannot image Jesus if we don't do the things that he did before us and taught us to do. See, and this is the, in addition, it's not just that Jesus prayed and then, and then when his disciples came to him and said, hey, teach us to pray. He didn't just say, ah, you know, you don't need to pray. I pray enough for everybody. Like, I got you. I'll take care of you. You just trust me. Just pray, and, 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 or you just trust my prayers. No, when, when, when they said, 
teach us to pray. He said, here's how you do it. This is what you do. Pray this way. I think his intention for us is to pray. Because he prayed, and because when he was asked to teach us to pray, he actually taught us to pray. But I don't think that's the only reason why we pray. Why do we pray? We pray because in prayer, God receives the honor due him, and we are blessed with grace and mercy by him. Look at the balance of these prayer requests. Look at, look at the way that they're uh, uh, juxtaposed to one or, or contrasting one another. God is honored, and we are the ones blessed. You can see this all over this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. You be honored. It doesn't say, Father, honor us. It doesn't say, Father, exalt us. It says, you be hallowed. Your kingdom come. It doesn't ever say, hey, make sure that we're the ones getting our way. Make sure that your, our, our will is being done. It is always exalting him. It's always propping him up. And it's always us asking him to work on our behalf. God is always the giver, and we are always the recipients. God is always the one who has, and we are always the one in need. This is God's design and intent for prayer, that we go to him, giving him honor and receiving back blessing. Now, let me, let me push just a little further and, and, and maybe say it just a little bit more confrontationally so that you see it exactly the way I think we need to see it. We pray because in prayer, God gets what he deserves and we receive what we don't deserve. Let's just consider it for a moment. Why pray? Because this is the way that we can receive grace and mercy, things we don't deserve. God deserves, naturally because of who he is, God deserves worship. He deserves honor. He deserves adoration. He deserves devotion. He is going to be glorified. There is nothing that can stop him from being glorified, even as he exercises or exercises justice. He will be glorified. But who we are naturally? What do we deserve from him? Wrath death, distance, nothing. Who, who we are in our sin deserves nothing but condemnation from God. But, it's <laughs> an important but, because of who he is, Ephesians tells us that he in his great mercy has made us alive. He has blessed us by his grace. He has saved us. Ephesians 2 verse, verse uh, 8 and 9 tells us that by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. We have been saved. He has blessed us with life. We breathe not just a, a, a physical air, but we have been, we're able to breathe in a spiritual air. We have been given eternity. We were dead and now we are alive. And the beauty of that is it doesn't stop at that. It doesn't stop and, 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 and say, oh, well, all the blessings will come at the end. 
He doesn't say, okay, I made you alive, but now you're just going to have to languish in that until I finally finish my work and make all things new. No, Paul tells us, he goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, and he tells us in verses like 11 through, I think it's like 11 through 22, I think is the passage, where he tells us that we have been given access that we've been united to God and one another, that we have been united as one family, a household of God, that we have been given access to the creator of all things, the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, the God who knows before you need what you need, the God who is able to provide for every one of your needs, the God who is there waiting for you to arrive at your need. You have been given access to him. So why pray? Because God in heaven says, pray to me. I can meet your need. I can provide for you. I long to bless you. And in that blessing, I will be honored. Yes, I will be glorified, but you will be blessed. Why pray? Why not pray? Why wouldn't we pray? It doesn't make sense to me why I don't run to prayer doesn't make sense to me why I'm always trying to do in my own power and not running immediately to prayer the God of all things who has always been and who always will be says pray and I will be honored and you will be blessed the question isn't why should I do it the question is why wouldn't And we pray, not because God needs us to, but because we need to. He didn't give us prayer because he needed it. He didn't give give us prayer because he was the one desperately in need. He gave us prayer so that that he would be honored and we would be blessed. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, makes this point. It's, it's a long point. Just, just hang with me as I read it. Listen close. But someone will say, does God not know, even without being reminded both in what respect we are troubled and what is expedient for us, so that it may seem in a, a, in a sense superfluous that he should be stirred up by our prayers as if he were drowsily blinking or even sleeping until he is aroused by our voice? So let me sum that up for you. Why pray? Like somebody's going to ask, why would I pray? He goes on, but they who thus reason do not observe to what end the Lord instructed his people to pray. For he ordained it not so much for his own sake as for ours. Now he wills, as is right, that his due be rendered to him. He has determined that we will approach him in this way. It is his decision that we are to pray. He has ordained it. That his due be rendered to him in the recognition that everything men desire and account conducive of their own profit comes from him. And in the attestation of this by prayers. By By prayers. Okay, listen to this line. But the profit of this sacrifice also by which he is worshipped returns to us. God doesn't keep the prophets to himself. He doesn't gain from this in any way. Yes, he is worshipped, but every bit of the prophet he puts back on us. Why pray? Why wouldn't we pray? 
Because in praying, yes, we honor God, we worship God, but in praying, we receive so much more. Full of his grace and his mercy, the answers to his prayers wash over us with something, with anything from God that we don't deserve, but it is a blessing from God. A.W. Pink, writing the same idea, says prayer is not appointed for the furnishing of God with the knowledge of what we need, but it is designed as a confession to him of our sense of the need. In this, as in everything, God's thoughts are not ours. God requires that his gifts should be sought for. He designs to be honored by our asking, just as he is to be thanked by us after he has bestowed his blessing. God is honored by our asking. He is honored in the providing. And then he is honored even more when we begin thanking him because of what he has done. And in this, this institutes a cycle. When this begins to take root in a person's life, no one's asking anymore, why pray? Why don't I pray first? I mean, you just think about this. We go to God in need. We go to God seeking his blessing, seeking to honor him in our prayers, seeking his will, seeking his good. And we see him come through and we see him provide and we see this miraculous thing happen in front of us. What do you think happens the next time we find ourselves in need? I wish we could say we immediately we learn this lesson and we run to prayer. But at least we've begun to gain experience to show us that we can run to him in prayer. But what happens as we mature in our spiritual, uh, we mature spiritually, we grow up as Christians and we begin to see that there's never a moment we aren't in need. It's something I'm realizing more and more. There's not a moment of my day that I don't need him. We sing the song, I need thee every hour, and I need thee every second. We don't always live that way. But man, the more we understand, the more we see what he does through prayer, the more we'll run to him in prayer. And we'll quit asking questions like, why pray? And we'll just pray. (laughs) Why pray? We pray because prayer is God's primary means of God's people accomplishing God's will. You see, we're we're told to ask for it. We're shown that we should be asking for his will. And in fact, when you look at the balance of the prayer, Jesus starts with God. He starts with his glory. He starts with his kingdom, which is another way of saying your rule and your, your, your way. You have your way. You do what you want to do. And then he brings in the personal request, the, the, the needs that we, we all have. He brings them in after that demonstrating that everything we pray for and expect to receive should be done in accordance with God's glory and God's will. It should be a part of his mission and his plan if we expect to have it, to to receive it back. But in this process, Jesus is saying, you, you and I, 
get to be a part of seeing God's will done in the world. We pray because it works. We pray because when we pray, God actually does stuff. We pray because God gives power to our prayers. Because when we pray, He actually moves. The God who is always there, who knows all things, who has all power to accomplish all things. He says, pray to me and I'll do for you what's my will. I shared this quote with you last week, highlighting the importance of prayer. But I think it's fitting here as well. It's from Charles Spurgeon. He says, whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. If you may have everything by asking in his name and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. James, writing to the early church in James chapter 4, verse 2, says you don't have because you don't ask. But the promise is here. Jesus says it. He teaches us in the parable. This is part, in part the point of the parable. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. it. The one who knocks it will be opened. But the inverse of that is just as true. If you never ask, if you never seek, if you never knock, what are you missing? Of the glory of God and the goodness that comes from him. God is sovereign. And I don't, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want you to misunderstand. I want to be very careful here. It doesn't mean that he won't work without our prayer. But there is certain work that he has designed and ordained only to happen when we pray. And in his sovereign design, and in his sovereign plan, he is just as capable of ordaining the means by which he works as he, ends the, as he is to the ends in which he works. Which is simply to say, if God can be sovereign and make his kingdom come, he can be sovereign in decreeing and ordaining by how he's going to bring it. And if he is determined in his sovereign will to make that happen in accordance with and as a result of our prayer, then maybe asking the question, why pray, is a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God altogether, a lowering of his sovereignty altogether. Because God doesn't just ordain ends to which he works. He ordains the means by which we arrive at that end. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to go too far with that thought. He isn't dependent on our prayer in the way that, that we think of neediness and dependence. But he has determined there are certain things he will not do until we ask. So why pray? Because it is the primary way by which we take part in the accomplishment of his will. And I think it's a, it, it, there are many ways in which we take part in the accomplishment of his will. For example, we're given spiritual gifts. We come into the faith and the Holy Spirit resides within us. And he gives us spiritual gifts and abilities by which we're called to edify or build up the body of Christ. Right? We all get them, but they're all different. 
Not everyone has the same gift. Every one of us have the gospel story. We're told to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So we've all been given this opportunity to go and proclaim the gospel. But before we ever go and proclaim the gospel, what do you think we should be about doing? Praying. Now, I just, 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 I mean, I think this is in, in, in every aspect of life. I used to have the, my grandmother and my aunt Kathleen. She wasn't even a, a, a real aunt. She was like a really, really close friends with um, my Aunt Ruth. And they were missionaries on the field together. And they worked for years and years and years in Indonesia. They came back. And I remember one time standing in my grandmother's garage. I was, I was, I think I was a teenager at the time. But standing in my grandmother's garage and my Aunt Kathleen and my grandmother got in a car together. My grandmother's driving, and if you knew my grandmother, you'd think, oh man, that's dangerous, right? Before they even pulled out, they stopped and prayed. And this is the reality of who I am and have been. I thought, how silly. Before they even drive, they're praying. On the other side of it, I don't know how I ever leave the house without stopping to pray. As small and seemingly insignificant as that was, what did God keep them from or what did God bring them because they prayed? It's the big stuff too. There's nothing too big. There's a reality that I come every week before I stand and I preach and I pray. Because how in the world am I supposed to do something of an eternal nature with such a finite power? Like I'm nothing, I'm insignificant. I mean, heck, I was laughing at my aunt and my grandma for praying, for crying out loud. Oh, Seth, you're not a, we're not a mega church. You don't need to pray. You just come and if you were a mega church, then we'd have to worry about praying. If there's one person in this room that I am preaching to, it requires an eternal work of God's spirit to bring eternal change in a person's heart. All I can do is put sound against an eardrum. He takes truth and drives it into our hearts. I need him. There's nothing too significant and nothing so insignificant that we can't bring it to God to see his will accomplished. So when I climb in a car or when I stand to preach, oh, why pray? Because as I pray, I get to be an agent of God's mission, an agent of his will in this world. And how that works, I don't fully know. I'll just be honest. But he tells me it does. And so I pray. We pray. We pray. John Piper says prayers like preaching in that it is a human act also. It is a human act that God has ordained and which he delights in because it reflects the dependence of his creatures upon him. He has promised to respond to prayer and his response is just as contingent upon our prayer as our prayer is in accordance with his will. Here we are in this, in, in this cosmic eternal dance. God's will in our prayer. Our prayer just as ordained as God's power and his will. And together they work. 
The reality is, unlike preaching, only some of us are gifted and called to preach. We all have an opportunity. We all have access. We all get to pray. We all get to be agents together in this work. So why pray? I mean, you think about it. Just think about the privilege the privilege of being blessed by God in ways I don't deserve and getting to honor God like I never would. The privilege of being involved in His eternal work. What a privilege, what a gift. I mean, when you stop and think about it, to not pray, that's, that's an act of, I mean, that's insanity. That's an act of, that's so illogical. It doesn't make sense anymore to not pray because God has designed an intended prayer for these things. We understand the great privilege we've been given. We're likely to ask why not pray more than we would ever ask why pray. But if these three reasons aren't enough, let me just close with one final thought, one final reason. We pray because God is our good Father who gives only good gifts. See, Jesus did something that's shocking. When he told them to pray, he told them to address God personally as Father. To this point in the scripture, this was unheard of. To the point in his covenant making, his covenant relationships with people, this was unheard of. The nation of Israel might have known God as the Father of Israel. But individually, personally, he is our Father. And we see this because he bookends this teaching on prayer. He doesn't he didn't just start and leave it there. He starts and he bookends his teaching on prayer with the reality that God treats us as his children. And he says, pray to me because when I respond, I will only give you what is good for you. I love how Tim Keller puts this. God will either, either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. So who doesn't go to God? Who doesn't approach God wanting him to answer yes? But when we begin to see that God answers as a father who gives and withholds for the good of his children, not only can we cherish his yeses, but we can cherish his noes. What parent in this room would only give their children junk food to eat? Like, are you raising your kids on Hershey's Kisses and lollipops? What parent in this room would allow their children to run into the highway and play because it looks like so much fun? I don't know if it looks like fun, but we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't allow it. What parent in this room would allow their children to handle a snake or play with scorpions? What parent in this room hasn't been asked for something that they know isn't good? And so out of their love and concern and for the good of their child withheld from them what they longed for. Every gift you get and everything he withholds is for your good. 
So why pray? Because this all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present creator says he's going to respond to us as a father does to his children. So I'm, I'm thinking we should pray. Let's do it now. Father, Father, so easy to brush past that. So easily just to rush along, Father. Thank you for your work to grow us and teach us and train us and mold us. Thank you especially for your work that makes our prayer such a privilege and such a blessing. May you continue to use it to guide our lives, to shape our hearts, and to make us more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.